Tonight's reading is from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, and has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you join me so we can pray? We come to you. Lord, even in this room, how many stories resembling the one we read, trials, sufferings, hardships, feeling the own cry of our soul, I believe, help my unbelief. Thank you for speaking to exactly where we are. Would you come now and unfold that word to us that we would trust you in Christ's name, amen. Alana Connor is a cultural psychologist at Stanford University, and she tells the story of growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, and then going to college at Yale in Connecticut, and how that experience uh, really confused her and noticed that there were conflicts in the values that she had grown up with and the new values she was facing. Uh, as she grew up in the South, basically she was taught to value uh, relationship, to be rooted in history, uh, to share sameness and appreciate what's held in common. But then when she went up to Yale, she said it was like the exact reverse. What was prized was to be unique, to challenge history, and to be free-thinking. And the more she thought about this, she thought, you know, I actually see this on a bigger picture scale. You can look at cultural groups, groups of people, and see this. For instance, 
Those that value interdependence, many come from Eastern cultures, uh, non-white, female, working class from the Midwest or South, and tend to be conservative Protestant or conservative Catholic. And those that tend to value uh, independence, so the first group would value interdependence, those that value independence tend to be those from the West, men, white, those from East Coast and West Coast, and those from mainline liberal Protestant denominations. Now, you may not agree with all that analysis, but I think there's some truth there. And maybe you don't even need that to say, yeah, I understand that there are you know, groups or parts of me that value independence and those that also acknowledge interdependence. And the reason we see both is because both are important, right? Both of those things are important as a kid's growing up, as we're developing. But there's one value that rarely gets acknowledged as good, especially in America, and that's dependence. Unless you can write them off on your taxes, dependence, right? <laughs> dependence is typically not something that is valued, dependence upon the government, dependence upon organized religion, dependence too much on your family or friends. But I want you to notice that um, it really is a core value of the Christian faith. In fact, this comes from the lips of the founder, Jesus Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. I say to you, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, talking about his crucifixion, then you will see that I do nothing on my own authority. Now, a modern listener might hear the words of Jesus and say, you know, you need some counseling, Jesus. You need to go talk to someone because you're not assertive enough, and you may be codependent on your Father God. But Jesus actually is pointing to something that he taught regularly where he said any that would become his followers must become like a child to enter the kingdom of God. So you kids here, when you depend upon your parents and your teachers, you actually teach us adults how we should live with God. That's what Jesus told us. More so, he didn't speak about it only, he demonstrated it. You have the eternal Son of God who becomes a helpless baby. In his worst, darkest hour, he says to his disciples, stay with me right? I don't want to be alone. Stay with me. And even as he's carrying a wooden cross, he needs help to get it to the finish line. Jesus modeled dependence in his life. And in that, we see that there is something called faithful dependence. And that's what I want us to look at this evening. And uh, we'll do it through two simple points the way God teaches us dependence, and how he expects us to respond in dependence. Okay? So let's look at those two things together. First of all, the way God teaches us dependence. And it's really two, two major ways. Desperation and failure. That sounds attractive, doesn't it? Desperation and failure. Um, if the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention, is true, then it's equally true, desperation is the mother of dependence. Um, you'll hear it from a recovering addict. My life turned around when I hit rock bottom. You'll hear it from a community that's been hit by a natural disaster. 
It led us to depend on one another. It's a regular testimony I hear in this church. I had a parent that was sick. I, you know, someone, my community group brought me meals. I needed to go to the hospital two in the morning, and one of my friends from the church came and picked me up. I was dependent, and as I was dependent, my faith grew. It went to a new place because God put me in that position. And it's the circumstance that this father is facing, desperate circumstances. And to make sure we heard it, Mark actually recounts it one way or the other four different times in this short passage. And I hope you hear that if you are suffering right now and in a desperate position. If you're wondering, does God see and does he hear what I'm dealing with? Four times over he does. He can describe it in detail what you're going through. The sights, the sounds, the struggles. He does hear convulsions, foaming at the mouth, lockjaw, loss of consciousness, what we would call tonic-clonic seizures. In the book of Matthew, we're told it's epilepsy that the boy's suffering from. But this one has a particular cause. It actually has a spiritual cause behind it. That doesn't mean that all illnesses have demonic oppression behind them. This one particularly did, likely so Jesus could demonstrate his power. But either way, this father and this son had been desperate for years. Jesus makes the point to ask him, how long has this been going on? I bet it was so important for that father to be able to tell him, probably with tears in his eyes, it's been going on for a long, long time. He's desperate, the suffering that he's dealing with. But also notice, it is the very thing that causes him to look for Jesus. It may be the only thing that caused him to go looking for Jesus. It was his desperateness. And I wonder if you and I might see the same this evening. Could it be that your desperation was the only thing that led you to look for Jesus. And might it be right now your desperation is the one thing God could use to get you to Him? It seems to be for this man. I mean, let's face it, when we're on the mountain of success, when we're making the grades we want to make, we got the job we like, our relationships are going well, we don't go looking for God. Because we feel like we don't need to go looking for Him. It's in the low places that we start looking up. And it's in that place that we actually begin to experience something new. One writer says it this way, we often see pain and suffering as setbacks and timeouts. They never are for God. They are a deliberate part of his plan to mold us to discover that through the pain, we might see that our theology of grace, our theology of grace became a lifestyle of grace. Those are two different things, aren't they? When a theology, how does a theology of grace become a lifestyle of grace? It's when God meets you in your place of desperation. That's when it happens. Jesus is trying to get this man to see the lesson beneath the lesson. The healing beneath the healing. The mercy beneath the mercy. He could have easily healed this boy. God could have sovereignly moved his hand and this boy would have never had this issue. He was meant to meet Jesus through this suffering in this day. You know, it was a doorway to grace. 
Desperation is a doorway to grace. There's a reason why Jesus' ministry had such success among poor people. And it's because life had taught them about their true desperation. And so their hearts were open to God. God must teach us that lesson if we're to receive his grace. So I'll ask you this question. Have you considered desperation not accidental, but God seeking to drive you to dependence upon himself? Are you learning deeper spiritual lessons behind your circumstance of desperation? Are you getting to the lesson beneath the lesson, the grace beneath the grace? So first of all, desperation. But a second one is failure. And we learn this by way of the disciples' experience. The man had brought him to the disciples, and he says um, they couldn't heal him. Now, imagine this. The disciples in chapter 3, we find out in chapter 3, Jesus had empowered and gifted the disciples to go preach, heal, and cast out demons. And they were having success doing that. I mean, he gave them that ability, and they're out there. And now comes the big moment, right? The boss is out of the office. The big client shows up. And it's their chance to really show their stuff. And it's, it's like a dud, right? You can imagine everybody gathers around. And maybe the disciples say, you know, maybe the disciples argue a little bit. And once, Listen, I got this. Now I got that. Okay, they have a little side off. All right, I'll take this one. Here we go. Be healed. Be healed. Right? Maybe three or four times. It's not happening. This is a very public failure. A very public failure. And it wasn't primarily a failure of healing. It was a failure of faith. If we went to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us when they asked Jesus, why couldn't we heal this boy? Jesus said to them, because of your little faith. And then Mark tells us the expression of that little faith was the fact that they didn't bother to pray. Or they didn't pray enough. And what was prayer? A work? You didn't work hard enough in prayer? It was actually the opposite. Prayer makes you more dependent. Prayer makes you weaker on God's power. They were going the opposite direction than that. It appears that they had gained confidence in their gifts and their abilities, and it had replaced their faith in prayer, just as you and I and our failures will try to stave off our failures through hard work and smarts rather than prayer. You know, we're going to turn to those things first, our confidence, our abilities, when we're facing desperation and when we're facing the thought of failure. When that dependence actually leads to freedom. There's a writer, uh, T.J. Addington, he wrote a book called Deep Influence, and in it he tells his story, the sufferings he's gone through, and they're not small. I quoted him earlier. And he talks about a major career failure that he faced how his reputation was lost. And he said, but that was actually the moment in my life where I came to understand God's grace in a brand new way. And he lists several ways that the, the, the lesson of failure can lead us to the experience of grace. Let me read some of these to you. Once humbled, we no longer need to worry about our pride. Once having failed, we no longer need to fear failure. Once we've let others down, we no longer need to worry and fear expectations. 
Once we found ourselves in need of God's grace, we no longer need to pretend we have it all together. Once we found ourselves in need, uh, rather, uh, once we are broken, we carry a mature perspective into our next brokenness experience. Once our reputation has been trashed, we learn that we can leave it in the hands of God. Once we've had to bet it all on Jesus, we learn we can do it again, and he proves that he's trustworthy. You know, in business and literature, they're also, they'll often talk about this idea of failing forward. You know, my failure can lead me forward. But, you know, unless your failure is getting you to the place where you're relying upon grace, it's, you're not failing forward. You're going backward. It's only when you and I begin to, to understand those lessons in light of grace that we fail forward in the best way. So, this is how God leads us to that experience through desperation and failure, but how does he call us to respond in it? Again, the conversation with the man takes us deeper. After he tells Jesus the history of this illness and oppression, he adds, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And at that point, you can imagine Jesus, he's, you know, he's asking the man, you know, he's staring at the boy maybe, and he's asking the man, tell me about the history here, just like a doctor would be looking at the patient. And then the man says, but if you can do anything, and Jesus just goes, we need to have a discussion here, right? Jesus catches that if, if you can, because it exposes the man on two levels, on the level of his doubt of compassion and Jesus' willingness to help him. And these are the very areas that thwart you and I in desperation and failure, aren't they? They're the very things that refuse us. We, we, we refuse to believe that God is powerful and refuse to believe that God has a heart for our problem. We doubt his heart and we doubt his power. And maybe this evening, you know, you heard this passage read or we were singing that song earlier you know, you're my healer, which of course doesn't all happen now, happens in heaven, but maybe you're, you're singing that going, you know, I don't buy that for a second because I've prayed for years. I've prayed that he would heal me. I've prayed that he would remove the suffering. I prayed that things would get better. But I want to ask you a moment, a question. In that moment when you prayed, were you after a relationship or you were, were you after a result? In that moment when you prayed of your desperation, were you after a relationship or were you after a result? Because there's a big difference, actually. A big difference, because the result, only one will get you trust in God. I mean, imagine, just put yourself in God's position for a moment here. Imagine you're in a relationship where trust is contingent on the fact that you do what the other person wants you to do all the time. Right? Imagine being in a relationship where day-to-day -day trust goes up and down based upon your performing according to what they believe. That's not a relationship. That's a contract. Right? That's not a relationship with God. That's something else. Whether he's willing and compassionate, Jesus, you know, jumps on that if you can because he sees behind the issue is really an issue of faith. All things are possible for him who believes because you're in relationship with a God who can do all things. That's why all things are possible. Because you're in the relationship with a God who can give you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Because you're in a relationship with a God that has withheld nothing from you. He is the Father that only gives good gifts. 
That's the only way you come to understand that. Do you see what I mean? If you're navigating with God through a results-driven relationship, you'll never get to that point. You'll never be able to be, see the heart of God, His compassion and His goodness. The crowds, oftentimes, Jesus would say that, you know, their unbelief of him was personal rejection of him. They wanted a product instead of his person. They wanted a product from him instead of him himself. And this has much to do with our own doubt and belief. Uh, theologian John Frame says that, and catch this, there is a believing doubt and unbelieving doubt. Believing doubt and unbelieving doubt. And he says this is the difference between the two. Believing doubt comes from a heart that's been transformed by God's grace. Unbelieving doubt comes from a heart that has not been. You catch that. Believing doubt comes from a heart that is transformed by God's grace. Meaning this. A heart that's become dependent on God in a fundamental way. A believing doubt may struggle and begin to think in their minds, you know, God, I don't know if you're good. I don't know if you're kind. I don't know if you're for me, but they won't ever stay there because of the cross. Because they've understood to see the cross of Christ given for them. Someone struggling with believing doubt, their selfishness might rise up in them and they may feel tempted to go, results, God. Show me results. I want the job. I want the money. I want the health. I want the relationship. But they won't stay there because even if they get those things, it'll never be enough. They want him. Believing doubt will be tempted to say, God, you never give me anything. Like the elder brother that says, you know, you, you, know, you never killed a fatted calf for me. But it can't stay there because it has a moment where it goes, you've given me everything. If you can... Believing doubt would say, if you can, he who, who would not withhold his own son, how could we say if he can? He who literally poured out his life, who poured out his breath for me, how could I say if you can? This is the Savior that's put before the people that have come to know the heart of God. It's the only faith that teaches that God loves in that way, and he comes to us in that way. And what encourages me so much is that it doesn't, it doesn't take a mountain of faith to spur Jesus' compassion and his kindness. It doesn't take a mountain of faith, does it? Basically, this guy just brought his need and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That was it. You can bring your need to God and simply say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. That is enough to spur the compassion and heart of God. That is enough to get him going for you. That is enough for him to, to put heaven in motion that he might come and meet your need. Because this is the Lord who responds to his people. Even the weakest prayer, the prayer that's a groan that the Holy Spirit will interpret to God, that is enough. And so what we're, what we're talking about here is faithful dependence upon God. Is it possible for you and I to live in a way where we are dependent upon God, and yet we are still being faithful to God? Yes, there is. I want to encourage you to take your desperation, and to take your struggle, and to take your failure to God. Take it to Him, bring it right before Him, and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is what we're being called to. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much.
that it doesn't take a mountain to move you. Thank you for everything you've given to us. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name, amen.